welcome back to That's What I Call Jones History. This is France Part 2. I'm your host, Christina. We are going to go on a journey of knowledge together. We're going to be discussing today uh, Louis XIV's reign briefly, but more focusing on the Black influence in French history which is where we really start to get an influx of more source material in regards, even though, as we will learn, uh, Blacks, African-Americans, and others had been migrating into France uh, for a few hundred years prior, but not quite as as prolific as in the later centuries. We will also be referencing other key events in French history all the way through to about mid 17th to 18th century is where I think I left off. And then we'll wrap it up with a part three. The sources I will be reading from are listed below. So definitely go and check out Uh, the full articles if you want to go all the way down into the historical rabbit hole. Marie Therese and Louis XIV were married for four years when the queen gave birth to a daughter on November 16th in 1664, one month prematurely. This took place at the Louvre, if I have that correct, Louvre, or I think we say Louvre. Pronunciation aside, this child was born in the presence of half the court. The child was baptized as Marie Anne de France and died shortly after on December 26, the same year. Marie Anne was the second daughter and third child of Louis XIV and his Spanish-born queen, Marie Therese, And just like her 1662-born sister, Anne Elizabeth, she lived only a few days. There were some voices over the years, however, who claimed the child did not die, and it was just a story to distract everyone from what really happened. References of this can be found in a sentence La Grande Mademoiselle wrote, and again, in St. Simon's memoirs and those attributed to Madame de Montespan, the queen gave birth to a black child fathered by an African dwarf named Nabo. You are not! <laughs> oh, shit, oh, Having a personal servant of a small size by one side was at this time considered a a la mode. And the thing to have and show off. It was something exotic and extremely fashionable. Nabo or Nabu, not sure, I'm gonna go with Nabo, was one of the first and the queen's close companion. The child being taken away was considered to be a child of this union. The court was told that it had died and a funeral was prepared and acted out while the child was given into the hands of Monsignor or Monsieur Alexandre Bontemps, the king's first valet, and taken away to be placed in a convent some time after where she took the veil in 1695. 
a portrait of this black nun exists at the biblique saint uh genevieve in paris and is thought to have been painted by the same hand which painted the series of 22 pastel portraits of kings of france from louis the ninth to louis the oh shit 26 Ooh, i may have fucked up on my roman numerals there uh, between 1681 to 1683 on the initiative of father claude du moline they always have so many names in french why 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 the nun herself is said to be born in 1664 the same year as marie anne de france and apparently was quite sure of her royal birth this story was even told in the historical drama on netflix that talks about the life of louis the 14th with a whole lot of embellishments with this being possibly one the duke de lyons claimed that the black nun was the daughter of two gardeners too poor to educate her who applied to mademoiselle de metion for patronage no one knows the true story and quite frankly it doesn't matter but if you were breaking down the facts did you miss that part about how she gave birth in front of the whole entire royal court i said hold up wait a minute something ain't right dead giveaway dead giveaway charles thank you very much dead giveaway so you make up your mind if you want to listen to the accounts that does say that this is accurate what does is the fact that the queen's heritage had opened up blacks to the royal court through their conquering of iberia and other african kingdoms such as the Asinia. prince anaba himself was a guest of the palace of versailles on an emissary mission sent to france in may of 1688 the less fantastical but still important part of this uh, visit was that the prince converted to catholicism and louis the 14th became his godfather on august 1st of 1691 he was baptized by Bousset, or Boussier in the church of the foreign mission sponsored by louis the 14th which he received the first name full name jean louis he takes advantage of the best preceptors becomes an officer of a cavalry regiment with an annual rent of 12,000 pounds he becomes the first black officer of the french army he spent 10 years in france before returning to africa but what i find in history is that great dichotomy between morality and prosperity capitalism power greed how people can be both sides of the same or one side of the same coin at different angles in their lives and i i feel that way with these uh bombastic type of historical people like louis the 14th that they are full of these contradictions that 
it would be easy to try to, you know, try to classify in, in a good or bad area. However, they are simply these weird, <laughs> because how can you become the godfather of the first black officer in the French army, sponsor him, so on and so forth, treat him like royalty, but then come up with the black code, which tells us a very long story that started in Versailles at the court of Louis the 14th, the son King himself in March of 1685 and ended in Paris in April of 1848 under the Arago at the beginning of the ephemeral second republic in march of 1685 at versailles when louis the 14th affixed beneath his signature the great seal of a green wax ornamented with green and red silk ribbon he enacted into french law the theory and practice of west indian slavery the document he authorized with his ceremonial gesture consisted of the 60 articles of the code noir the black code a body of law concerning the discipline and the commerce of negro slaves of the islands of french america french america imagine if that was a thing like that's what it would be called <laughs> not united states of america it's french america how history is a fickle crazy thing the code noir inscribed the legal particulars of the gallic role in the vast euro colonial project of the economic exploitation of the caribbean and later louisiana using african slave labor it also provided a general structure for the partial incorporation of hundreds of thousands and eventually millions of africans into the body politic of the ancien regime and its successors in the visionary imagination of omnipresence and immortality that characterizes such absolutist pronouncements the sun king addressed the preamble of the code noir quote to all present and to come code noir directly confronted the problem posed by racial as well as religious difference to the formulation of the French body politic as a matter of law. Despite the undeniable color consciousness of its title, the detailed provisions of the Code Noir of 1685 worked to create a new society in, quote, our islands of America, end quote, in which the races would eventually be subsumed into the genius of a single superior race, the Gallic one. Interesting. From 1680 French slave importation to Haiti or into Haiti alone averaged 8,240 slaves per year, making a total of 800,000 slaves by 1776. This number excludes those who disembarked at Martinique, Guadeloupe, and St. Christophe. It also excludes those who perished during the Middle Passage from disease, neglect, abuse, murder, and suicide. This approximated one-third of those who barked, embarked in African ports and one-fifth of the ship's crews. In Spanish America arose the first extensive 
dependence on Africans for slave labor, and thus the first master-slave power struggles in the hemisphere. On the master's side, the struggle manifested itself in slave codes that upheld the legality of slavery and controlled the actions of slaves, freed slaves, and masters, often with the stated or implied goal of protecting the white people from the potential power of the black people. On the African side, the struggle manifested itself in numerous forms, the most disturbing to the Spanish being the communities of runaway slaves, maroons, in the often mountainous interiors of their colonies. Maroon communities also thrived in the French and English West Indies into the 1700s and 1800s. If you are a fan of black sales, You will recall in all of those islands, particularly around Jamaica or any any one of those islands, really, it doesn't matter. Pick an island, any island. There was always a escaped slave population that were able to settle in the mountainous regions that the, the whites would not go into because, you know, like, I, I ain't going up in there. Shit, it's malaria up in here. It's mal- malaria up on this fucking beach. But we at least conquered it here. <laughs> but they didn't know the terrain as well. And thus, they didn't take any of those chances. We end up looking like a monkey fucking a football out there. Although they were a tiny minority of the African population in North America, Maroons and free blacks in Central America and the Caribbean became a political force to be reckoned with. The well-known Maroon revolts and leaders such as Kudojo, I think that is how you say his name in Jamaica and Toussaint La Ouverture. Oh my God, I cannot say his last name. Ouverture. Ouverture. A few moments later. Toussaint Louverture. the leader of the haiti revolution which came later in the 1700s but examples abound of maroon power in the 1600s we know of two maroon communities in guatemala and hispaniola and a free black community in costa rica slave codes were also devised in the english caribbean islands i.e. the Barbadian Slave Code of 1661 served as a model for the South Carolina Code of 1696. Worth comparing with the 1705 Virginia Code. Runaway slave communities, however, did not develop to the same extent in the mainland English colonies as they did in Caribbean, in the Caribbean, and I'm sure you can guess why, home turf. Get the fuck out my house! Curiously, despite the French having eight colonies in Africa, not including the ones held in America, France started to go through a period of enlightenment. Two enlightenment authors who had an especially profound impact on the future revolutionaries were Charles Louis de Sacadant, Baron de la 
Brede, or Breed Ete de Montesquieu, who, who did this to me? <laughs> who set me up for this? Can I just have nicknames from 1689 to 1755 in Jean-Jacques Rousseau, someone I can actually pronounce and is better known to me, from 1712 to 78. In his Letres Persane, which is Persian letters, Montesquieu, a wealthy aristocrat or aristocratic member of the Parliament of Bordeaux, used the device of a foreign visitor to highlight the contradictions of the government shortly after the death of Louis XIV. His daring jabs at the Pope, quote, an ancient idol worship now from habit. Always forget to say in quotes, but damn. And at the Catholic doctrine brought down the wrath of the authorities, but did nothing to stop the book's successes. Written in an entertaining and accessible style, the Persian letters did not present a clear set of doctrines. Instead, readers were drawn into a process of dialogue and critique modeled by the novel's characters. In his masterwork, just, it's just, you know, I'm just going to take all of the beatings of my horrible French. De l'Espire de l'eau from 1748 uh it's the spirit of the laws i should have just said the english version montesquieu presented a survey of political institutions throughout the world drawing on both the rationalist and empiricist traditions he analyzed politics in purely secular terms arguing that each country's laws developed in response to its climate and the nature of its customs his comparative approach made it clear that in his view, no political system could claim divine sanction. I totally agree with that. His personal sympathies lay with mixed forms of government in which a separation of powers protected individual liberties. His description of the English constitution in which the king shared power with parliament strongly influenced French political thinking. A former parliamentaire himself, Montesquieu, argued that the aristocratic courts were intermediary bodies whose resistance to royal authority prevented abuses. Although he himself no revolutionary, his ideas had great influence at the beginning of the revolutionary movement in 1789 in the revolution's early phase when, you know, they weren't chopping people's fucking heads off. He was cited more than any other authority. I am also, it's coming back to me who Montesquieu is. A generation younger than Montesquieu, Rousseau raised profound questions about both private and public life. According to Rousseau, the self becomes empowered in private union with the beloved other, as portrayed in his immensely popular novel in which I'm not going to say in French, the new Eloise, or in public union with one's fraternally minded fellow citizens, as explained in the social contract. I could probably say that one. Du contract social. A work less widely read before 1789, but even more symptomatic of change. 
1764, the Jansenist parliamentaires as ideological uh, ideological progressives secured the expulsion of the Jesuits from France. Damn, man, Jews can never catch a break. Why am I still getting hate? It was not long before these enlightened lawyers and men of education, not starved peasants, began to ponder a reformation that would later become a revolution. The peasants being hungry, I mean, all you had to do was give them some bread. (laughs) Most of them didn't even know how to fucking read. They ain't trying to change the constitution. They just trying to make sure shit goes according to schedule in their life. And as long as the the wheel is running in a way in which everyone is kind of getting what they need, you know, maybe a little bit of struggle, but if you just all the way barren and you ain't got nothing to lose, that's when you fucking don't give a fuck. But I think by now, particularly in America, you know, appeasing most people is fine. (laughs) You know, there is a few smart in in the sidelines going, what the fuck is going on? But, you know, It's only when things are straining for everybody does everyone want to raise up. (laughs) I'm not going to go too deeply into the revolution because I think touching on those authors and what inspire it is more important than the the day-to-day. Everyone knows, you know, they all blame Mary Antoinette. She ain't never said no shit about they can eat cake. And then they decided that she was to blame for everyone because she had fancy clothes and she really did should have stepped down her wardrobe. But these are people that don't know any other way. And then they ended up being caught trying to roll out of town, could have fucking escaped, but they decided to take their whole damn household because as stated prior CA about you really should know better, but didn't because... (laughs) When you are who you are, it doesn't change overnight. You don't just suddenly become smarter, you know. Marie Antoinette, by the way, adopted a black child. Something a lot of people would not know a lot about. One of the ones that uh, actually survived almost as long as her longest surviving daughter. France held most of what would become their colonial territory in, or would become a territory in West Africa, including present-day Senegal, Mali, Burkina, Faso, Benin, Guinea, Ivory Coast, and Niger. In Senegal and West Africa, the French began to establish trading posts along the coast in 1624. According to some historians, French merchants from the Normandy cities of Dipe and Ruin, Ruin, Ruin. <laughs> oh, I'm thinking about that freaking uh, Family Guy episode. It's like, how do you say that? <laughs> ruin. It's like, it's Ruin. Ruin. Uh, traded with Gambia and Senegal Coast and with the Ivory Coast and the Gold Coast between 1364 and 1413. Probably as a result, an ivory carving industry developed in Depay after 1364. These travels, however, were soon forgotten with the advent of the Hundred Years' War in France. Various European powers, such as Portugal and the Netherlands, and England, of course, 
then competed for trade in the area of Senegal from the 15th century onward. The Portuguese first established a post on the island of Gore in 1444, from where they organized a slave trade. The island was captured by the Dutch in 1588, but they established defensive forts and developed trade further. The Dutch know how to steal some shit, because they eventually took the whole fucking slave trade. Stolen. In 1659, France established the trading posts of St. Louis, Senegal, very original with the names there. The European powers continued contending for the island of Garay until in 1677, France, led by Jean II de Estres, de Estres. during the Franco-Dutch War from 1672 to 1678, ending up in possession of the island, which it would keep for the next 300 years. In 1758, the French settlement was captured by a British expedition as part of the Seven Years' War, but was later returned to France in 1783 following the French victory in the American Revolutionary War. Since we have mentioned Senegal, let's talk about the Senya. The Senya were the mulatto French African women of the island of Garay and the city of Saint Louis in French Senegal during the 18th and 19th centuries. These women of color managed to gain some individual assets, status, and power in the hierarchies of the Atlantic slave trade. A Portuguese equivalent existed referred to as Nahara, a name for Luso-African businesswomen who played an important part as business agents through their connections with Portuguese and African populations. Senya commonly had power in networks of trade and wealth within the limitations of slavery. The influence held by these women led to changes in gender roles in the family structure archetype. Some owned masses of land as well as slaves. European merchants and traders, especially the French and British, would settle on coastal societies inhabited by Senyas in order to benefit from the increased proximity to the sources of African commerce. The earliest of these merchants were the Portuguese. These merchants were given the name Lancaros because they threw themselves among the Africans and they would establish relationships with the most influential senyas who would accept them in order to obtain commercial privileges. The Portuguese referred to these women as Nahara and the earliest named example was Dame Portuguese in the 17th century. Many senyas were wed under common law local or common local law that was recognized by priests of the Catholic faith. These marriages were for economic and social reasons. Both senyas and their husbands gained from these partnerships. Europeans passed their names down to the offspring and with it their lineage. And there are portraits at the time of the senyas on Goray along with their slaves. When some of the senyas became too powerful, leaders like the Portuguese crown sought ways to remove the women from their wealth. I'm not surprised, motherfuckers. 
Different crimes that the Portuguese crown sought to accuse the women of were crimes against the state or crimes against Christianity. An example of this appears with Bibiana Buzz da Franca. She was a prominent senya who over the years accumulated a lot of wealth in slaves. After realizing how powerful she was, the crown wanted to find a way to dismantle her influence and power. Quote, accused of rebellion, trading with foreigners, and tax evasion, she was imprisoned with her younger brother and another co-conspirator and taken to Cape Verde Islands, end quote. She was able to receive a royal pardon and free her younger brother after leading a coup against the crown's representatives. I'm a boss ass bitch, 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 bitch. Due to her power, the crown sought to criminalize Bibiana Vos de Franca. However, once they realized that she was too powerful and too influential, all charges against her were dropped and she was once more considered loyal to the crown. Bibiana Vos de Franca's confrontation with the Portuguese crown represents the strength that the senhoras in this time period had and also the Portuguese growing inability to control the people. The social status of senhoras also allowed for greater social mobility in Goree than in other parts of Africa. Though there is limited documentation on the origins of the most on the origins of most of the senhoras, it seems likely that at this time the people of Goree were divided into several social classes the Jambor or freeborn the Jam or people of slave descent the Tega and Uga or blacksmiths and leather workers and the Griots or storytellers many Sinyas were of the Jam or Griot class and were often married by European men because they were considered especially beautiful once married to a European man, women helped them handle many of their trading affairs and transactions and gain economic and social stature or stature in the community themselves. In this way, women of lower status could gain power in the community and become important traders through their marital status. What were marriage practices like? Marriages between African women and European men were governed by local law. Given the fact that many European men would not stay in Goree permanently, marriages were often in a state of flux. If a European man left Goree and intended to return, the African woman would wait for him. When the man got on the boat and to go back to Europe, Sinyaz would scoop up the sand where his last footprints were and put it in a handkerchief, which she'd hang on her bedpost until he returned. Oh, bitch. Senyas would often wait years for men to return without remarrying. If European men left without planning to return, or if a Senya learned that her European husband was not going to return to Goree, women would remarry. This was not considered shameful in any way, and Senyas would not lose any of their social status and would often retain much of the trading power that they gained through their prior marital status. Remarried senyas would often raise their children from their European husbands alongside their new African husbands, and these children would receive inheritance from their mothers, not their fathers. What's interesting and admirable about these women is that they did find a way to gain power through yes one of the oldest trades in the book but it wasn't necessarily 
in respect of that because in the eyes of the church they were in fact married these were a husband and wives uh it was recognized in that community if not only in that community that this was legal and so i think that uh they were very influential it looks like they definitely knew what was what and that is why they were sought out but it seems to also be an aspect of possibly uh attraction mutual attraction uh, there there seems to be devotion that could be a part of these relationships uh it could also be a matter of, of love even uh, we just don't know but the the possibilities are there and then and thus they they must exist right if it happens now why wouldn't it not happen then why would it only need to be a business or transactional type of interaction and why can't it be both so i think compared to a lot of others of black and african descent uh they find themselves in different you know but it is different to be a slave of an african than a slave of well it depends i suppose but I, I do think there probably is a difference in how they certainly treated their slaves at least I would like to optimistically think so and they they cultivated that and passed that power and inheritance on to their children so they set themselves up to expand on what they themselves were able to obtain so I I, I think compared to even Caucasian women at the time and they can't even own anything legally and here you have uh these black women being survivors a french factory at the mouth of the senegal river was rebuilt in 1659 at nadar an island in the river that became the town of saint louis and in 1677 france took over goray from the dutch these two communities became i told y'all the dutch take everything these two communities became bases for French trading companies that brought slaves, gold, and gum Arabic in the region and became homes for free Christian Africans and Euro-Africans. I think that is where we are going to leave it since we are getting at the 40-minute mark. We will pick up with the rest of the 16th to 18th century and then continue on. If it needs to be, I don't think it'll need to be a four-parter, but um there are some additional questions to be answered such as what were free black people doing in france not the colonies but in the actual country during this very tumultuous time so we'll pick up there if you want to send feedback have any suggestions so on and so forth blackaccountsajimi.com or you can leave a comment below my social media will be there as well like share and subscribe until the next time Peace, hair grease, and blacker magic.